We should all know these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the very first moments of creation, water. The primary building block and necessary component for all of life. The Spirit carefully guided and hovered over these waters. And we don't realize how important water is to us. Every area of creation, every aspect of creation, every living thing is dependent on water. And it is one constant to every human being. We have a need for water. We need to drink water. And probably one of the the, the biggest problems around the world today is fresh, clean drinking water. And we take this for granted. Because we have stacks of bottled water in our closets. We, every one of us has a faucet. Everyone has, has multiple faucets. So you can just turn on water at any time. And for most of the world and throughout most of history, this was not the case. Water was not always readily available. And this was a constant daily struggle and is for millions of people around the world today. It is a constant daily struggle. And so I think it's, one, we should remember that as we're carrying around our, our water bottles and be thankful that we have clean, fresh, running water. And so uh, before we talk about the living water this morning, I want to I wanna give you some information about water, things you might not have known. Now, you might have known that our planet is roughly 70% water, but you probably didn't know that 97% of that water is undrinkable because it's salty or it's contaminated somehow. Another 2% of that water, a little over 2%, is in glaciers. So any of you math whizzes out there know how much water is actually drinkable? Less than 1% if you're doing the math. 97 plus 2, you can figure that out. So less than 1% of the water on our planet is actually drinkable. The adult body is 60% water. But a child, when they're born, a baby is 80% water. And throughout the rest of our lives, our bones are 31% water and our brains are 80% water. Some of you, your brains might be 90% water. I'm just, just, just kidding. Um, and to be healthy, to actually survive day to day, you have to drink at least 64 ounces of water. A very healthy person, an active person, could drink as much as three gallons of water a day. If you don't drink at least 64 ounces of water, you lose that much by sweat, by exhaling, and urinating. Like just 64 ounces of water, just doing those things. And if you live in Florida, you can just double whatever that is because you're going to sweat a lot more than that. And so water is important and we need to continue to, to drink water for our health. And we take it for granted because 90% of Americans get water from a public water source. And each household on average uses 100,000 gallons of water a year on average. So that's us. What about the rest of the world? 85% of the world lives in the, the driest half of the world. So you take all the driest parts in the world, they are the most heavily populated. 85% of the world lives in some of the driest parts of the world. It's not the rainforests that are overcrowded, it's the deserts. And so the, the struggle for water and search for water is a daily issue to a lot of them. Drinking enough water can help with most ailments. Even cancer. Because drinking enough water helps to build up your body's immune system, flush out impurities. And it's reported that 80% of illnesses worldwide are water-related. 
So just having a lack of, of clean water, a lack of regular drinking water, there are 200 children who die every hour from lack of clean water or from some waterborne illness. And so in developing countries still in these areas, in the driest parts of the world, the average woman walks 3.7 miles per day for water. Sometimes as much as three times a day, multiple miles. Many countries, it's a 7 to 10 mile walk to the nearest clean water source. But And so now when we look at this text this morning, we look at this woman at the well and we think about the situation she would have been in and the situation Jesus is in, it kind of puts things into perspective. I mean, we're lazy, right? You know, we're going to do three laps around the parking lot just so we can get three spaces closer, let alone walk four miles to get water. This is things that most people around the world just do regularly. And all of creation is dependent on water. No matter, or no wonder scripture talks about it so often. Water is the perfect analogy for life. And as we're going to see, water is also the perfect analogy for eternal life. So let's look at our text this morning in John chapter 4. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying it to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and all his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come back here to draw water. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are Lord over all. You are creator of all things. And in your perfect creation, you knew how to keep everything in its perfect balance. You knew the place for light and darkness. You knew the place for water. Lord, we don't understand how we can be made of water, how the earth can be made of water. Uh, We don't understand how our bodies works, how it sustains it, but you sustain us perfectly. Lord, thank you for the blessing of of creating us and creating us in such a way that you can preserve us and keep us. Thank you for all the blessings we enjoy. Thank you that we have water and have it abundantly. But even more so, Lord, thank you that you sent your son to be living water for us. Thank you that he sent his spirit to to well up a spring within us 
that bubbles into eternal life. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Help us to see you in a deeper way this morning, that our lives are living wells and a living testament to who you are, and that through faith in Jesus Christ, there is eternal life. And Lord, I just pray that your spirit would guide me this morning, that it would be your words and not mine, uh, that, and you would apply it to our hearts and our minds, that we would not be weary in doing good, and not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. Lord, we thank you, we love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so starting in verse 1, we see here that now when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples. We saw this last week. There's a tension here. The Pharisees are very territorial. They don't like other people moving in. They've got this religious monopoly, and now someone else is, is preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins. And baptizing, cleansing before God. So this is, this is cutting in on their industry. And so Jesus realizes this, this tension and he decides to leave. And so there's a couple things just to note here. We're going to move through this introduction pretty quick. We're going to spend most of our time on the last half of this. It teaches us a couple things. I mean, one, it teaches us about the threat that they were to the Pharisees. But also, it teaches us about the order of of baptism. Look at this. Uh, He learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples. There's an indication here of of what the biblical pattern for for baptism is. This is helpful because Jesus was making disciples and he he was baptizing those who had repented. So this was the mark of his ministry going forward. But we also learn that it wasn't him actually who was baptizing. Now, why is this detail included? It's like John can't get one sentence out without qualifying himself and interrupting himself with with some added detail. I I think this is here for a couple different reasons. I think one, it's here to, just so you know, they were were not baptizing apart from Jesus. They're baptizing under Jesus's authority. But I think Jesus did not want people to associate baptism with some supernatural act. And I think this is also a continuation of the, the priesthood of believers, because we are required to make disciples and, and baptize them. Jesus didn't baptize anyone. And Paul had the, the same concern because he didn't want people thinking that their, their baptism or their salvation was associated with him or anything he did. And so I think those are a couple things to, to draw from this. And so there's this tension over baptism. And because his time had not yet come and he, all things had not come to fulfillment, Jesus withdrew himself. And it says here in verse 3, he left Judea and, and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, most of us have no uh, context of what any of that means because we don't live there. We don't know what the, the terrain is. We don't know what this looks like. I got a map. It's not, you may not be able to see it far back, but I kind of want to give you an idea of what's going on here. So Jesus was in the Judean countryside, which is in the south, the bottom of the map here. And he was on one side of the Jordan and John was on the other. This is what was happening last chapter. And so he was going back to his uh, home area of Galilee, which is all the way in the north. And you see, you have to get through Samaria. And so all those little dotted lines, those are our paths uh, that you can go. And you can't tell from the picture, but there's a lot of mountains and valleys and hills and ravines. This is not an easy walk. For Jesus to go uh, just to get into Samaria, it was at least 10 to 20 miles. And as we'll see in a moment, he got there by the sixth hour, which is essentially noon. So he walked 10 to 20 miles by noon. Now, we don't know exactly where he was, where he was baptizing, where he was teaching at, at the moment. But we do know 
that the Jews really did not like the Samaritans. And so they tried to avoid Samaria at all costs. And so many Jews would go uh, to the other side of the Jordan, would take the long way around to get all the way up to Galilee so they wouldn't have to set foot in a Samarian town. But Jesus had to go there. This was the shortest route. But also we know Jesus did not do anything by accident. And so he had to, to make his way through Samaria because God was going to work there. And so we're going to talk about Samaria for a little bit, give you a little bit of history, and then this will help you understand the context and all the layers that's going on in Jesus' interaction with this woman. So Samaria is a city, a region, uh, but also a people. So in the the exile of the Jews, when the Assyrians came and conquered, they they took a lot of the Jews out. The Jews that remained were um, intermarrying with all these pagan cultures because what the Assyrians did at that time to basically water down the population, they didn't want this entity that was not faithful to them. So they would send in Babylonians and they would send in all these other, other nations and they began to mix and mingle with these Jews who now became uh, unequally yoked with all these non-believers. And so they became polytheistic. They would still worship Yahweh over here, but uh, they would accept all of the gods of the Babylonians. So obviously this creates tension between them and the Jews. And so this happened about 700 B.C., roughly. And then what happened around 400 B.C., when they start rebuilding the temple, and we see this in in Ezra, now these these half-breeds are offering their services to the Israelites. And the Israelites are saying, you have nothing to do with our God. You are half-breeds. You are not pure Jews. You can't even step on this property. You have nothing to do with our temple. And so they got mad. And so there's, there's been tension now for 500 years between these two cultures. And so what they did is, is they, they did repent of their polytheism and they did turn back to the Lord. But because they hated the Jews so much, they only accepted the, the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible, the books of of Moses, they didn't accept the the Psalms or or the prophets or the writings because they didn't want anything to do with with gathered Israel. And so they made their own temple. We see Mount Gerizim right here. Uh, So they made their own temple and began to worship God there. Because that, that was not appropriate for the Jews during the Maccabean period, the Jews raided that temple and set it on fire. And so there's this tension with worship, which we're going to get into next week. We won't talk about too much this morning. But so there's this centuries old tension between people who are distant relatives. And uh, we're going to unpack some of this as we go, because this is this is very particular. And and the Pharisees, the Pharisees created a lot of distance between themselves and and the Sumerians and the rest of the Jews followed suit. So that just kind of gives us a sense of where where we are. And I think it's also important to address the heart of the issue. That most Jews were content that their long lost brothers and sisters were outside of God's covenant people and that they were under the wrath of God and it was okay and they, they wanted them to stay there. They wanted them to be banished. We talked about this on Wednesday night uh, when we began Romans 9 and we saw Paul's heart for his countrymen. And we were all just amazed that Paul would say that he would be cursed for the sake of his brothers and sisters, that his heart was broken for those who were far from the Lord. This was not the heart of the Jews at the time. The Samaritans were, were, were lost as far as they were concerned. And they were okay with that. And they created greater distance between them. But Jesus had to go through. Because the final words that Jesus gives to his disciples in Acts 1 before he ascends, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so Jesus was beginning the work of this, of this kingdom spreading here by planting seeds in Samaria. 
And so it goes on here that so he came to Samaria, uh, called Sechar, and near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. We don't have time to go into this. Jacob bought a field on his deathbed. He gave it to his son Joseph. This detail is important later. Pay attention. Uh, we'll, we'll address that. And so uh, Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. So it was about the sixth hour. Remember I said this is roughly around noon. If they're using the Jewish way of keeping time, the first hour is at sunlight and usually six o'clock. And so by that time, he would have traveled a great distance and he was tired. Normally we would just gloss over this, but I think this is so important because John, who spends more time than any other gospel proclaiming and explaining the deity of Christ, also gives us great detail about the humanity of Christ. That he was tired. He was fully human. And this should be an encouragement to us. Because when you're tired, moms, it is Mother's Day, when your babies keep you up all night, when, they are, when, when you can't get them quieted down, when you feel like you can't keep your house in order and uh, attend to your, to your children and you are exhausted, your Savior knows what it's like to be exhausted. Guys, when we, when we are out in the sun or we work all day and we are just beat up and we feel like we don't have time to attend to our house or our family, your Savior knows that you're exhausted. It's important to know that your Savior feels everything you feel. And he was able to endure it. And he did it as an example for us. Don't miss these little details. These are, are, are beautiful in understanding who Jesus is. Because yes, he was God. Fully God. But he was also fully man. And that should be an encouragement to us. So now we, can, we find ourselves at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, many people read this and think, why is Jesus being so demanding? That's just the, that, that's the way they spoke. They were direct. They were like northerners as opposed to southerners. Anyone grew up up north? When you grew up up north, like, people just tell you what's on their mind. There's not all these pleasantries and please and thank you. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. We didn't grow up with that stuff. This is what it is. They, they, they spoke their mind. They spoke directly to you. And it, it wasn't offensive. It was just they got to the point. They didn't waste words. That I kind of appreciate. Southern hospitality is nice, but let's just get to the point. I'm thirsty. Give me a drink. And this actually shows us two things. Again, this shows us another aspect of his humanity. Give me a drink. Jesus was thirsty. Not only was he tired, he was thirsty. Like any of us, if we had walked this great distance, we would have needed something to drink. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. This verse should remind us of who Jesus is. If you have time to get there, it's Hebrews 4.15. I'm just going to read it real quick. Hebrews 4.15 and 16. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Our Savior needed something to drink. That same Savior lived so that he could die for our sins and become our high priest. So that when we have a need, we can approach his throne. And that high priest felt everything we felt in every way we do, but without sin. And so it's not sinful to be tired. It's not sinful to be to be thirsty. Jesus did it and he did it perfectly. But he is reminding us that he is in every way our representative. And we get tired and we get, we get thirsty and we have need. We can go before him because he knows our needs. Never just marvel at what a savior we have. 
Because he's not just a distant God. He took on flesh so that in every way he could understand us. He would know our needs. He knows what it means to mourn. He knows what it means to be hungry. He knows what it means to be thirsty. He knows what it means to be tired. What a savior we have. And so that we can learn about his humanity. But also, this is a great teaching tool. You guys pay attention here. We talk about how, how to share the gospel with, with people often. You know, how do you make connections with people? Jesus is a master at this. Because one of the best ways to make connections with people is a shared experience. Either by asking someone to help you or asking someone else uh, if they need any help. And so immediately you come together and you have this shared experience. And so Jesus enters into this conversation and gives an opportunity to teach her by asking her for help. And we'll get into just a moment because she can't understand that he would ever ask her for help. There's a lot of cultural stuff going on here. Um, And we'll get to that in just a second. But I just want to encourage you, if you struggle with, okay, how do I reach people? Or how do I minister to someone? One of the best ways to create connections, create relationships with people is ask them for help. We talked about humility last week. It's kind of step two. If we're, we can ask people for help. And we can also ask our neighbors or our friends or our, our family, how can I serve you? How can I help you? And all of a sudden, you've kind of broken down those, those barriers that existed before then by having this shared experience. And so Jesus is setting her, her up for this because this would have been culturally completely unacceptable. And then we see that the disciples are off getting food. We're going to see that in, in two weeks, so we won't touch on that. For his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. A Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, a, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samarians. Can you hear the attitude in her voice? How is it you can ask me, who do you think you are? Don't you know our peoples don't get along? Don't you know we don't interact? Don't you know we're not supposed to do this? And not just were, were they not only supposed to interact, but men and women were not supposed to interact at all. She would never expect him, this Jew, to ask her a Samaritan. Like, don't you know this Capulet and Montague feud that's been going on forever and we don't even have anything to do with each other? This tension is cataloged in all of the, the Jewish teachings. There's a lot that Pharisees and the teachers at the time had to say about this. When it says that there is no dealings with them, there's no association at all, no interaction. The uh, Mishnah, the, the Jewish teachings of the time, said that they are ceremoniously unclean from birth, the, the Sumerians. This is a direct quote. They are menstruants from their cradle. And so we know that a woman was not clean on her menstrual cycle. So they're saying that Samaritans are so unclean that they are menstruants from their cradle. I mean, this, is, this is harsh language here. And they also say that eating the bread of a Samaritan is like eating swine. So there is a lot of distance here that the religious teachers of the Jews put between the Jews and the Samaritans. And here Jesus is talking to this to this this woman. And this also should give us an indication of how radical the good Samaritan parable is. Because the hero of the story is the unlikely Samaritan. The one who actually helps is this detestable, unclean menstruant who helps this this traveler. And so Jesus was not afraid to shake things up and and shake up the social conventions of the time. So he look at how he responds. Again, we see this often. They will ask some surface level question. You know, who are you? How is it that you ask me? And she wants some kind of surface level response. But what does Jesus say? 
if you knew the gift of God. It's nothing to do with what she was talking about. Jesus almost, whenever someone says something that they shouldn't be asking, he just sidesteps it, ignores it. Here's what you really need to know. Here's what you really should be asking. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus challenges people who are, who are obsessed with superficial things. All these cultural constructs, you know, good thing we don't have any of that in our day, right? Where people are so concerned with these external things. How can you talk to me like this? How can we come together? Jesus is saying, no, 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 forget all that. Have the gift of God. Why are you, why are you worrying about these, these, these social things? Don't you know who you're, you're talking to? Because Jesus' needs were merely physical, but her needs were spiritual and eternal. And he redirects her from these physical needs to the eternal needs. And the reality that there is this, this, this dryness, this, this thirst within, any, within everyone that only Jesus can satisfy. That there is this spiritual thirst within her. She needs living water. He may be thirsty now, but she's going to be thirsty for eternity without living water. And so Jesus gets it real deep, real quick. And anyone who has ever tried to find their thirst or quench their thirst apart from Christ knows this. Any one of us who look for other things other than living water to, to find our satisfaction knows how temporary those things are. I love what Augustine says about this. He says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. He knows, Jesus knows that this is a restless woman. And he's, he's diagnosing what's really going on here. In every situation, Jesus knows exactly who he's speaking to. He knows exactly what they need, even if they have no idea who he is. If you knew the gift of God, what is the gift of God? We just did this two weeks ago. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave. The gift of the Father was the Son. So Jesus is saying... If you knew the gift of God and the one speaking to you is one and the same, you're looking right at him. The one who can give you living water. And that gift of God, Acts 2 tells us, gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's this, this beautiful picture of the Father giving the Son and the Son giving the Spirit. And the gift of God is salvation through the Son and living water that continues through the Spirit. This great picture of the, the, the Christian life. And so there's a lot here and I wish I could spend more time on it. But the gift that was given by the father gives living water. Now, this this term in, in the Greek living water is, is is something that is alive. It can be a stream or a, a spring. And essentially what that means is it, it's not something that's, that's stagnant. It is living. It's coming up from, from inside the earth. And living water, streams and, and, and springs, were less likely to have contaminants and have debris fall in them. See, this is another thing we don't realize when we read through this with cultural eyes. This, this well, Jacob's well, is over a, a thousand years old. And think of all of the dust and sweat and animal stuff that falls into this, this well. And they knew that if your, your best opportunity for clean water was to come out of a spring, but springs weren't always readily available. You have to go into the mountains many times to get springs. And so Jesus is saying, instead of this, this man-made dug well, I have living water. I have a fresh stream which to give you water. Now this should have, should have perked her, her, her ears up. And this is not the first time this comes up in scripture. 
Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Jeremiah chapter 2. There's a beautiful picture here and a beautiful contrast in Jeremiah chapter 2. And I do want you to have your Bibles in hand because we're going to do a little Bible drill later. We're going to walk through the Old Testament. And um, I want you guys to keep up with me. But I, but I, I gave you a cheat sheet. All those passages will be in your, in your uh, sermon notes. Also another, also another reason to look at the sermon notes. Um, so Jeremiah chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 11 through, through 13. This is God speaking to a people who look to other gods. And listen to what he says. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? He's setting the foundation here. Are you going after something else that's not even a god? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. You think God takes it lightly when people turn to other gods? But look at verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Look at this contrast that God is creating here. He is the fountain of living water. Jesus is reiterating this. I am a living spring. I can give you living water. And anything else you're looking at, they are broken cisterns. They are broken containers. They can't hold water because they're not really God's. They act as though they are gods, but they are broken. They are, they are full of holds. They can hold no water. Jesus is drawing on this imagery. We're going to look more at this imagery more in a moment. This fountain of living water is always a picture of the Lord. And so then we get to her response. Well, the woman said to him, again, missing the spiritual implication, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. For what we know, this well is about 100 feet deep. And so every traveler would have carried a, a, a bucket with them. And it's not what we would think of as a bucket. It's usually animal skin that was held together by, by bones or, or, or sticks, and it could be folded, and then, and then actually held open by more bones or sticks to carry water, and then sewn up at the top. It's pretty ingenious, actually. But every traveler would have, would have carried this because these were like your desert water fountains. You might walk for hours before finding a well, and you wanted to make sure you had something to draw water with. And if you didn't, that's 100 feet deep. You are never going to pull anything out of them. But Jesus, with his full trust in the Lord, does not travel with one of these. So she's amazed. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and this well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Again, she still doesn't get it. And then she even doubles down a little bit here. And she said, are you greater than our father Jacob? So she's challenging him as a traveler. She's like, you're not too smart. You're not really bringing anything with you to draw water. And then she's, she's challenging his ethnicity. She knows he's a Jew, and she knows that his, his um, lineage goes through Jacob as well. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Now, the, the Sumerians, uh, Samaritans traced their lineage back through the children of, of Joseph, um, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so they, she saw that her father as Jacob, and it was a source of pride that Jacob's well was close to her village. And she might have went here. Uh, there are different speculations about why she went to this particular well. Um, but we know that she highly valued Jacob. And so she's, she's challenging his ancestry. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself. Jacob's lips were here. Who are you? You know, she, she's lifting up this, this guy generations before, as did his sons and his, his livestock. The Jews and Samaritans saw their whole identity in their ancestry. 
to them, they were their ancestors. I'm important because Jacob is my great, 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 great grandfather. She found value in Jacob, who would later become Israel. And he was her source of pride and her source of provision. It's Jacob who provides for me in this well. It's Jacob who is my identity. The irony here is that the Jews also associated themselves with with Jacob and that these, these Samaritans were not pure enough. And as we saw also on Wednesday, not all Israel is is true Israel. And so both of them were tying themselves to a physical ancestry. And the point here is the spiritual. I spent some time with family this week. Anyone always have family that you love to be around some of the time? And, um, you know, family that that you you have blood in, in common with. But beyond that, there's not really much. And I was listening to the conversation in this particular side of the family, put so much into ancestry. How far back can we trace our, our, our generations? I mean, this is, this is big business now. You know, where does our ancestry lie? And for most of the world, your identity is, is, is caught up in, in how uh, well-known or well-traced your family lineage is. But I was thinking about how sad that was. Because there is no hope. Everything you know, everything you have is in the past. Everything is in the good old days. Remember these people going back. We were talking about uh, the, the last living relative of a particular generation who died. And now there's nothing left from that. And there was this, this sadness that my connection to my heritage has now been severed. And how sad that is if your heritage is only in the past. And her heritage, the Samaritan woman, her heritage was only in the past. But for believers, how encouraging is it that our inheritance is not a temporal one? It is not tied to what came before. We are not limited by those who came before us. Our heritage is an eternal one. And this is what Jesus is presenting to her. So now we get into verse 13. Everyone who Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. So by making this this contrast again, he doesn't address Jacob. He's putting himself above Jacob. He said, Jacob gave you water, but you'll be thirsty again. That water was not good enough. Yes, I'm greater than Jacob. Jacob's water can't satisfy. And it's interesting, in Genesis 49, Jacob is actually prophesying about Jesus, the one who would come from the line of of, of Judah. She doesn't, she's not making this this connection, but Jesus is trying to redirect her again. She's looking for a man-made well. Jacob as her provider, but Jesus again redirects her from the man-made. A well is dug out by hands to living water that is given by God. And this is the, the, the nature of all natural things. Every, every thirst, every drink, every meal, every goal, every milestone, when you achieve it, you'll be thirsty again. You'll be hungry again. You will desire again. I mean, I know that for most of, of my life, I chased after things that could never satisfy me. I was thirsty again. I got them because I thought they would make them make me happy. And any of you who is, who, who've come to Christ, who've lived a life apart from him, you know what that feels like to search for things and still be thirsty. To, to, to find your identity in things that leave you drier than when you found them. And we have to be careful as believers that we're not seeking man-made wells. That we're, we're not looking to get our thirst satisfied in things apart from Christ. We're not looking to a well dug with human hands. That we're not looking to things that, that, that man can make, but looking to the living God who gives living water. This woman was blind to this. We, as believers, 
have to remember that we have the source of living water. And so he goes on, verse 14. But anyone who drinks from Jacob's well, this well, he'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never, thir- will never be thirsty again. Um, what is this water that Jesus gives? What does the Bible say? Um, now, I want you guys to know how to use your Bible. We will be people here who know scripture because this is not the first time that living water comes up. So you'll have a little list of the verses there. I'm going to run through these pretty quickly. And I want to see everyone grabbing a Bible. See, this, this, is, this is a book. It has, it has pages, and I guarantee you I can make it through the Bible quicker than you can type on your phone. And I want you to get in the habit of knowing where this is in, in, in the Bible. I want you to hold a book in your hand because this is a good practice. Because Jesus is not doing something new here. This is something that God has been promising all along. Look all the way back to Psalm 1, which we've gone through many times. Psalm 1, how is it described the, the, the blessed person? If you're not familiar with your Bible, go to the middle of your Bible. It should find you in Psalms. Go to Psalm number 1. and we're gonna, I'm going to move through these in chronological order to make it helpful for you. But I want you to see this. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The blessed person meditates on the law of the Lord. How is that person described? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. It's a picture of the blessed person who remains in the Lord. Look at Psalm 36. Psalm 36, starting in verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is a fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Turn to Isaiah, a couple books to the right. First of the prophets. Look at Isaiah chapter 12. This song of of praise, this great picture of the Lord's character and his salvation. Look what it's compared to. Oh man, did I skip Psalm 42? That's a good one, sorry. We're going to do Psalm 42 real quick. See how good you guys are if you can flip back to Psalm 42. Can't read my own handwriting. Our Psalm 42, 1 and 2 says this. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. This is such a beautiful picture of us receiving living water and thirsting for it and desiring the things of God. All right, now we're in Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1. He's talking about the the, the day of the Lord. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, you turned away that you might comfort me. Looks like forgiveness. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation and you will say in that day, 
Those who have drawn water from that well of salvation, who receive this living water, they will shout, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. That should be the cries of our heart when we drink of living water. I have eternal life. My God is my Savior. How can I stop singing his praises? Look at Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44, starting in verse 2. Thus saith the Lord who made you. Who formed you from your womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, who I have chosen. Look at this. For I will pour water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up from among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Beautiful picture of life breathed on our dry ground. Look at chapter 55, verse 1 and 2. I could do this all day. I just selected a few. This one you should know too. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Contrasting it to the man-made. Why do you spend your money for things that is not bread? And labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. The living water of God is rich food and there is no price. So go uh, to Zechariah. So if you don't know the minor prophets, go to the end of the Old Testament, which is Malachi, and go one book back. Zechariah, last chapter, chapter 14. So he's talking about the day of the Lord. I'd love to hear pages turning. On that day, uh, this is Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in the summer as in the winter, ever flowing living waters. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. This is Zechariah prophesying. Hundreds of years before Christ and thousands of years before this would be fulfilled. And we see it fulfilled in Revelation 21. Go to the last chapter, last two chapters in your Bible. This is Jesus speaking. Write this down. Excuse me. These are the words of the Lord being repeated to John. Revelation 21 verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. In the culmination of all things, Jesus has promised living water without payment that will continue to spring. And we see that uh, even more clearly in, in chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, brought as crystal, bright as crystal, Flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, a tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree 
were for, the, were for the healing of the nations. This living water that the Jews wanted to limit to themselves, this life of God is to all the nations. This beautiful picture of the gospel in complete fulfillment is living water. Jesus is not just speaking to one woman at one time. He is drawing together all of scripture. He is drawing together all of redemptive history. I am a fountain of living water. Come to me, drink, and you will never thirst again. The prophets have been proclaiming it for hundreds of years. And John saw it in his vision of heaven as it will be fulfilled one day. Jesus is telling her to go from this man-made well to the living stream of water. He puts his life-giving spirit in, in you that wells up this beautiful picture of bubbling spiritual life inside of us. I don't know if we, we ever think about that, but this language here back in John 4 says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It, it just keeps coming and coming. If you've ever been to any of the springs in Florida, you see this, this water coming out. Hunter mentioned this last week. Uh, but it, it's almost like it's just never ending. It just keeps coming and just keeps coming. That's the picture of the Holy Spirit. Once that well starts in you, no one can shut it off. It will keep bubbling up until eternal life. And that should give us encouragement because we are sure in him because his spirit is continuing to well up within us. This living water This is encouragement to the believer. If you trust in me, you will never thirst again. This language in the Greek, it, 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 it is the strongest emphasis you can have. You will never not thirst forever. So this literally is you will never not thirst forever. And. Whenever there's a double negative in the Greek, they're like, they're, they're, they're putting their, their stamp on it. Never ever will you thirst once you get this water. This is not some flash in the pan thing. This is not some salvation that you can mess up. This is a, a supernatural act that God does within you and you will never ever thirst again. This is clearly going over this, this woman's head. <laughs> because see how she responds in verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus is saying, I've got this e- eternal spring. And she's like, yeah, if you can save me a couple hours on my daily commute, this is great. She completely missed the eternal significance here. Never, ever thirst again. And I would challenge you as believers. If you feel spiritually dry, if you feel like the Lord is, is far from you, or you feel like, like you are unable uh, to drink of this living water, it's not because the Holy Spirit stopped flowing. It's because you tried to find your thirst somewhere else. This is a real question for believers. What other things are drawing our thirst away from the living water of God? What other things are drawing us away from our Savior? What are, are, are we using to quench the work of the Spirit within us? Because this living well is going to keep bubbling. This woman just completely missed it. And I love this, this picture as an encouragement for believers that as we grow in Christ, this, this well continues to bubble up and live within us and create life within us that does not cease. But this woman. Now, obviously, we can't get into the adulterous situation and all that. If you know the passage, spoiler alert, next week. But right now, we're, we're just dealing with this concept of, of, of living water. Jesus here opened all of the scriptures before her and said, I am living water. And she's just worried about her daily life. Ever feel like that when you share the gospel with someone? 
Like, look, I'm telling you, God has given us the secret to eternity. He's told us what living water is. He's offering eternal life. People said, nah, I'm good, but can it just make my life a little bit easier now? Isn't that what most people want? Most people want a little bit easier. I just don't want to have to go to this well anymore. I don't care about that eternal life stuff. I don't care about this, this, this living water. Can the living water help me right now? And it's sad, but it's reality. Because when, when we share this news with people like, Jesus came to earth. God himself took on flesh. He walked. He was tired. He was, he was thirsty. In every way that, that, that you are. So that he could go to the cross. So when you trust in him, your, your, your sins are forgiven forever. And he will give you living water. He will put his spirit within you and you will never die. You will never be thirsty again. Do you want that? And most people, they don't. This woman right here, this is completely missed on her. But I think there is good news for her. And again, we'll, we'll see that in a couple weeks. The most important question we can ask is, do you drink from living waters? Do you have the water that will, you will never thirst for again? And this is how much God loves us. That he sent his son to be this gift. To give eternal life. For those who believe in him, who, who drink of this water and send his spirit to save them. It wasn't about literal water, but about living water. But sadly, most people don't know the difference between something dug by human hands, a well, and springs of living water. Let us be people who know the difference. Know what gives life for eternity. Versus just what is an exercise in futility. And it is not what you drink which gives you eternal life. Um, and not what you do. We're going to talk about worship next week. Um, and so it's not physical. It's not the, the kingdom of God is not one of eating and drinking. But it is of, of spiritual life. It is of drinking from this eternal well. And this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to open up eternity and to open up spiritual truths that are too amazing for our mind to handle. When he says, trust in me, believe in me, and I will give you eternal life. I will give you understanding. I will open your eyes. I will open your, your ears. This is the best news anyone can hear. And whether you're a religious Jew like we saw a couple weeks ago with Nicodemus, or you're this lowly Samaritan woman, the good news is for everyone. Let us be those who possess this living water and proclaim this living water. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are faithful to complete what you started. That from the beginning of time, you knew us. You knew our sin. You knew that we would be thirsty and dry without you. We are as dry ground. We are dry bones but you sent your son to be living water for us. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Lord, let us never, never grow weary in hearing this good news. Let us drink of the depths of the, the truth of your word, of our knowledge of you. Let our hearts be transformed to look like you, to walk like you, and to be witnesses in Jerusalem, all of Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth, that Jesus Christ is living water. And the only name above heaven that man can be saved. And all of heaven and all of earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.